on this episode of The Kinked Wire. I look at it kind of like the RPVI in a sense that, you know, all of us are radiologists. We all had completed our vascular ultrasound training and we can get this additional certification that recognizes the fact that we spend a significant amount of time in our practice involved in this subspecialty area and we're competent at it. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, surabad.org slash kinkedwire. On this episode, host Sudan Desai speaks with neurointerventional radiologist Marty Ridvani about opportunities for interventional radiology in the treatment of ischemic stroke. The new recognized focused practice designation for endovascular neurosurgery, its impact on training pathways, and more. Hi, Marty. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. I appreciate it and look forward to your thoughts regarding the recognized focused practice designation for neurointerventional radiology. I want to start by saying I I feel a little bit of a special kinship with you as I also returned back to fellowship after a decade in practice. But please tell us a little bit about yourself, your training, and how you ended up in neurointerventional radiology. Well, I took kind of a circuitous course getting uh, to the interventional neuro portion. I actually was very interested, really, when I was back in medical school, I got interested in interventional radiology, and I had the good fortune of doing my uh, medical school training at Northwestern, and Bob Vogelzang, who all of us know, um, was one of the attendings. And I remember I came over when I was a third-year medical student, did a procedure, uh, biliary drainage, on one of my patients when I was early in my internal medicine rotation. And that's what got me started down the road of interventional radiology in general. And I was like, this is just totally cool. He was just so engaging. And I was just so excited about the whole specialty. I then went on, I was doing my internship and residency in the military. And unfortunately, the military didn't have uh, fellowship training within the uh, military, and they were sending us out. And uh, at that time, I was interested in interventional neuroradiology, but the program was three years. And unfortunately, I only had two years. So I had to choose between neuro and interventional. And for me, that was pretty simple. It was like, yeah, I'm doing interventional. And so I completed my body IR fellowship, served as a interventional radiologist in the U.S. military for almost 10 years. And then I wanted to go back and do my neurointerventional training because I had already started seeing neurointerventional cases, pretty basic stuff at that time, carotid stenting primarily. And I wanted to get more advanced training. So fortunately, I was accepted to go back to Hopkins and do a neurointerventional fellowship there. So I went on my own time. Uh, I got out of the military and did the neurointerventional fellowship. Um, but it, it was something I'd always been interested in. It's just the uh, opportunity for training was a little uh, delayed in my case. Well, I certainly want to acknowledge that there is just about nothing that Bob Vogelzang can't make interesting, even a 2 a.m. GI bleed. So that was one of the lessons I learned during my fellowship there. In your current practice, how many interventional neuro cases do you perform in an average week? And can you elaborate on some of that caseload that you're performing at present? At this point in time, I am in a uh, private practice setting again. And it's primarily doing uh, stroke work. Uh, We've been doing a lot of ischemic stroke. I'm actually going to be beginning a new practice in February where I'm going to be much more involved in uh, hemorrhagic stroke. So that's a little bit of a change right now. When I was more in, uh, in the academic setting and other practices, 
it's been a lot more of the other cases being hemorrhagic stroke, dural arteriovenous fistulas of the brain and spine. Those are really make up the majority of the hemorrhagic types of cases that I was involved in. Ischemic stroke, as we all know, has become a really big deal since around 2015 when all the studies came out. And that has really become a dominant part of my current practice. And I think for many people, it's the case as well. For some of the younger listeners that are out there, it's nice to see that even within such a subspecialized environment, there are a variety of interest areas. Can you please take a minute to educate our listeners who may be unfamiliar with that recently approved, recognized focus practice designation by the ABMS? The RFP actually was kind of uh, interesting how it came about. If you rewind many years, neurointerventional radiology is an approved specialty by the ABMS. And so there is a fellowship pathway that has existed for many years. Unfortunately, And I think it's because there's so many different players involved in the neurospace. We have neurologists who are doing endovascular work, neurosurgeons, as well as radiologists. And prior to this, there was never any sort of certification. So you could do a fellowship. And then at the end of this fellowship, okay, you're fellowship trained. But there was no exam that went along with that afterwards. And so the goal really of the RFP is to recognize those people who have completed the neurofellowships and then are spending a significant amount of their practice involved in cerebrovascular interventions. The importance of it is really more at the teaching end right now, because to have an accredited fellowship, you need to have faculty members who are accredited. So now there's this pathway. Previously, it was called the CAST certification, and then it became this RFP, which is recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties. And it does actually require completion of a certified fellowship, and that can be an ACGME accredited fellowship or a CAST accredited fellowship. Then in addition, there is a written examination and a minimum number of case requirements. So Outside of the academic setting right now, I wouldn't say that it's an essential certification, but what it does is for those people who are involved in a significant amount of neurovascular work, I look at it kind of like the RPVI in a sense that, you know, all of us are radiologists. We all had completed our vascular ultrasound training and we can get this additional certification that recognizes the fact that we spend a significant amount of time in our practice involved in this subspecialty area and we're competent at it. Do you find that this designation is allowing the playing field to somewhat level set between subspecialists? I think it does. I think that's part of the reason why this all came about as well, because, you know, rewind 15 years, even though the ACGME track had been there for years, I think even today, if I looked at it, there would only be five or six ACGME accredited neurovascular programs. Yet there are other accreditations through CAST and UCNS. I know last time I looked, there were almost 54, 55 CAST accredited programs. So there are multiple accreditations of the fellowships. And I think that it's important that there is some standard. So even though there are all these different accreditation programs, there needs to be a standard. And I think that was really what the goal was originally of the CAST certification that's now the RFP that recognizes that there is a need for a standard in place of the fact that we don't have an official board certification at this point. 
So would you say that achieving kind of that uniform standard is the most significant component of the RFP? I think it's an important component of it. I think what it does is it, you know, for our patients, it kind of indicates that there is a level of practice, you know, there's some sort of oversight that the individuals who claim to be practicing in this area have a certain amount of education and that they've met certain requirements so that we don't just have everybody diving into this field. Because kind of as an aside, you know, we were talking about stroke earlier. Everybody wants to be a stroke center. Well, is it really such a good idea that everybody is is a stroke center? We all know from all the different kinds of procedures that we do in interventional radiology, the more you do, the better you get. And there is a minimum, you know, number of cases that you need to be performing regularly to be getting good outcomes. And, you know, that's really what it comes down to is, you know, our patients, are we having good outcomes? And I think that that point is crucial. And I think many of us would endorse very clearly that the rationale to get into medicine was to serve the patient. How do patients actually know about this designation? It really is more on the accreditation and certification end, you know, as hospitals look to have certifications in, you know, neurovascular, in stroke. There is no requirement that individuals have these certifications to be doing work in this area of stroke. And this was actually a very, I think, a very important thing because it would have actually limited patient access significantly. Um, This is something that actually was brought up many years ago, and JACO was actually looking at requiring all the operators performing the stroke cases uh, to be CAS certified, um, which was the predecessor to this RFP. And that actually would have significantly limited the number of people doing this. And I think what's important to understand is that this is not just for stroke therapy. The RFP is for those who are doing more than just stroke, those who are doing AVMs, tumor embolizations, uh, intracranial stenting. So this is really for those people who are specializing and spending at least half of their practice doing high-end cerebrovascular interventions. Thanks for that clarification. And as you touched on here, the hospitals, you know, may look for this designation as they accredit their staff. So what are criteria that interventional radiologists will need in order to obtain their RFP designation? And is this something that new graduates only should aspire to, or is this something that current practicing interventional radiologists can also obtain? As with uh, when we developed the interventional radiology certification many years ago, there was a grandfather clause there. So people who had been practicing could take the exam and submit their case logs. That option does exist for the RFP. So for those people who have been in practice and are doing a significant amount of neurovascular, there is an option to do that. For people coming out of training, there's a very well-defined pathway. And actually for all three specialties that are practicing in this area, there are very well-defined pathways for getting there, which do require a certain number of cases being performed and then taking in a written exam demonstrating that they understand the cerebrovascular space, the treatment of patients in this area. If you go back for those who are in training recently, There's the approved pathway, which is also a big deal, which kind of goes hand in hand with this RFP, 
there's now a new training pathway for neurointerventional. Previously, radiologists had to do the diagnostic radiology residency, then they would go off and do a year or two of diagnostic neuroradiology. And then finally, after all that, then you could proceed on to the neurointerventional fellowship. With the new pathway that was just approved this past June or July, there's now a second pathway for radiologists. So those who are in the IR residency or in radiology who can obtain six months of clinical neurosciences, which includes neurosurgery, stroke neurology, and time in neurocritical care, and then meet the six months of neuroimaging diagnostic neuroradiology requirements during either the IR residency or the diagnostic radiology residency, and have enough experience in cerebral angiography during those preceding five or six years, then they can go directly to neurointerventional training without doing that sidestep into a formal year or two of diagnostic neuroradiology. So it actually provides a shorter pathway, which from a time standpoint is now congruent with the amount of time it takes for neurosurgery and neurology also to complete all of that training. So I think that's exciting for those who are interested. When I was a fellowship director, I remember talking to many people who were in residency training and they're like, do I really have to go do a year or two of diagnostic neuroradiology? And one of the things that has also happened during the last couple of years is the requirement for catheter-based diagnostic cerebral angiography is no longer a requirement in the diagnostic neuroradiology side. So a lot of things have come into play. The catheter angiography is also now not a must, but a should requirement for interventional radiology. I know that when I was doing my fellowship back in the uh, mid-90s, I was doing three to five diagnostic cerebral angiograms every day. And that was as a body interventional fellow. And that I know things have changed a lot. And now at least there's a mandate is too strong a term, but in radiology, somebody has a requirement now at least to continue doing diagnostic cerebral angiography during their training. And that feeds into this alternate pathway now where it's a shorter pathway and more direct for people who know who are very interested in interventional and want to do neurointerventional. And it kind of dovetails very nicely with the whole RFP as well. As you give advice to trainees and even students that are interested in this area, do you view this as something that they should absolutely aspire to? Or is it sort of a nice to have. And I think that there are many designations that are now available, you know, that confer a level of additive accreditation. Uh, But as people go into their practice, clearly there's a balance of time and energy versus necessity. And so how do you counsel someone that's interested in this pathway, but not totally convinced that they want to devote resources to it? And I think that's a really important question. And I, you know, I've spoken with medical students and young residents um, about this. And the thing is, how interested are you in neurointerventional neurosciences? I think, you know, as we all know, it depends on who are the people who you interact with during your training. And, you know, you have some great interactions with people. It may spark an interest in a subspecialty that you either thought you were interested in or maybe even had no idea you were interested in. And then you see something, you're like, this is really cool. I want to pursue this. I, you know, I like this. And so I think that for those, you know, for medical students who think they are interested in, I think it's important for them to do electives in these areas to see, is this really something I want to pursue? 
I believe that interventional radiologists who have done body IR, we get enough, or hopefully we still do, get enough exposure in our programs to do head and neck diagnostic angiography, epistaxis, a lot of these really what I consider basic cases, which I which I know I was involved in during uh, my, what was a body interventional fellowship many years ago. And I think to be able to do the basic head and neck cases, you know, such as diagnostic cerebral angiography, carotid stenting, and even uh, ischemic stroke is well within the skill set of an interventional radiologist who has not had subspecialty neurotraining. I think where the kind of the line is drawn, you know, for me is when you start intervening on hemorrhagic stroke. The German model is set up in such a way that individuals who are body interventionalists or neurointerventionalists have the training and the background to do carotid stenting and ischemic stroke. If you want to start treating hemorrhagic stroke, AVMs, aneurysms, that requires the additional fellowship training. And that's something that I have, you know, discussed many times. And I think that's a, I think it's a great model based on my original training as a body interventionalist, because I did participate in carotid stenting when I was doing my body interventional fellowship. A stroke really didn't have much uh, in the way of intervention at that time, more than sticking a catheter up there and just uh, infusing a little bit of uh, thrombolytics. That has changed a lot since my training, but I think is well within the reach of people doing body IR right now. And I know there are programs that have already implemented this where the body IR fellows and residents get to spend time on the neuro side and are actively involved in therapy and stroke treatment, as well as carotid stenting. And when they go out into practice afterwards, they have the skill set to continue doing these cases. And I think that that's a great intro to kind of where I wanted to head next, which is as people become interested in IR and, you know, here's a a shout out to the SIR and the ABMS for the IRDR pathway and everyone that was involved in that. How many programs actually offer the pathway that you're talking about with the incorporated neuro and interventional neuro time? For those of our younger listeners, how do they identify these programs and what questions would be important for them to ask as they're trying to feel out what might be the best fit for them? Um, That's a great question. And I know there are currently a handful of programs um, that are offering this exposure. Um, I know that the, uh, I want to say the program up at Mount Sinai, they have been very active in this for actually several years. And the IR residents and fellows do actively get to participate on the neurointerventional side. I know other programs out there are working on uh, changing this. And really, I think it's very, very early on because this new pathway really was only approved this past summer. So I think a lot of things have changed the programs are going to work on implementing these changes because even from the, you know, questions that the residents can ask or interviewees, you know, med students, you know, what are the opportunities? So in some programs with IR fellowships during the internship year, there may or may not be options to rotate and do some neurocritical care training to get that experience or to rotate on neurosurgery to get some neurointerventional experience as well as neurosurgical experience. I know other institutions that internship here, you're on general surgery and that's it. 
you know, they're, they're, you don't have the option. So it's a little harder to fit in those neuro-specific clinical months later on in the residency program. It's possible, but it's very, very challenging with all the other requirements that exist for the DRIR pathway. So for students who are interested in this, I think it's important to look into what are the options during the internship as far as for getting some of these clinical rotations. I hate to use the word out of the way, but that's basically what it is, is get them done during one, possibly two of those rotations during your internship, because then it makes it a lot easier to fulfill the remainder of the requirements during the remainder of the residency. Whereas it becomes a little bit more of a challenge to squeeze the six months of clinical into that time frame during the IRDR residency or fellowship, depending on which uh, program people are pursuing. And then looking at each institution, you know, what is the relationship currently and what are the opportunities afforded for the trainees that are currently there? Again, this is a path and evolution that's going to be changing over time. I think that one thing that we all know is it depends on who your partners are on the other side, how successful these programs are. When we have great collaborations with other specialties, it's fantastic for everybody. And most importantly, it's fantastic for the patients. You know, when you have a great team that works together and you tear down some of these silos that have come into play over time and people are actually working together, it just makes an environment that is just much more, a lot more fun to work in. And you do a lot more neat stuff. And you know, I have to say during my career, my most enjoyable times in practice have been when I have had partners in other specialties. And we're able to bounce ideas off each other. We're able to collaborate and work together. And ultimately, you know, it makes work a lot of fun and the patients benefit. 100% agree that interdisciplinary interaction, I think, is a highlight of many of our practice environments. As we wrap up here, I want to switch gears real quickly, and you've touched on this already, but more explicitly, there are some you know, current interventional radiologists that are doing stroke interventions, not formally trained in neurointerventional radiology. Rather, they were you know, mentored. Do you foresee the RFP designation impacting their practice environments? At this time, I don't think so. I think the RFP is going to be potentially important. It's going to be important for training programs, for training people, because the requirement is that's coming to have a accredited program. You will need these accredited people to teach the next generation. But for those people who have been doing this, who are actively treating patients, I don't think it's going to take away from what they are currently doing. But if their practices are larger than stroke, they've actually been actively doing the other hemorrhagic stroke type cases, and they have the opportunity to have this designation, that this is what they're doing, and it wouldn't really change things for them. But I don't think it's going to negatively impact those who are currently practicing and primarily treating patients with ischemic stroke. Well, I think that's comforting to hear. And as we close out here, you may have heard in prior podcasts on the Kink Wire that there's always sort of a closing question that if you weren't an interventional radiologist or an interventional neuroradiologist, what do you think you would have done and why? I look back to my own training. Um, I actually was very interested in a surgical specialty of some sort when I was in medical school. Um, and it's really because I think I'm a very procedurally based person, and that's just kind of how my brain is wired. The steps involved, the choreography, I guess for me, it, it 
goes well, because that's how I think. And it was really when I was all set to do my surgical rotations during my, uh, you know, my second block of rotations as a third year medical student. And it was, as I said, just before that, when uh, I found out about interventional radiology, and I was just like, wow, this is cool. And I still remember going on to my uh, general surgery rotation with everybody else who wanted to go into surgery and, you know, the attendings asking at the beginning, okay, what are you going to do? General surgery. Next, what are you going to do? General surgery. What are you going to do? Surgery. They got to me. I said, I'm going to do interventional radiology. And I got this kind of look back like, okay, we're going to fix you, young man. And I just remember thinking to myself, (laughs) that may not have been the smartest thing to say right now. But you know, here I am 25, 30 years later, I doing IR, neuro IR. I still love what I'm doing and I wouldn't change that. Well, that is great to hear. I think it's also really nice to support the idea that sometimes pathways are nonlinear, but you can always reach an endpoint that you love and value. Well, listen, I really very much appreciate your time and explanation for all of the issues that we've covered here regarding that recognized focus practice in endovascular neuroradiology. So thank you as always and take care. Thank you for having me. That was interventional radiologist Dr. Marty Radvani and Sudan Desai discussing the potential impact of the new recognized focus practice designation for endovascular neurosurgery. We thank Drs. Redvani and Desai for their time, and you for listening to The King's Wire. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at surwrap.org.